It's been said before that you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Have you heard that? I either heard that phrase, you never get a second chance to make a first impression, either from Will Rogers or from a head and shoulders shampoo commercial. I don't know which. Nevertheless, when you meet someone for the first time, when you're introduced to someone, it often matters a great deal. How you welcome them, how you're introduced, how you meet, how you greet. I imagine if you've been married a while, I could still probably ask you, hey, how did you meet your your beloved? (laughs) And you would be able to tell me, I would hope. Now, in our culture, the questions that we use to break the relational ice are typically these. What's your name? Where are you from? And what do you do? Usually, that's a, a, the, the, the questions that we ask in order to become acquainted with someone. What's your name? What do you do? Where are you from? And interestingly, when we open our Bibles, when we turn the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we are introduced to the Messiah, the long-awaited king promised in the Old Testament scriptures, the Christ. And Matthew tells us in his gospel, in these opening two chapters, he tells us three things. What's the Messiah's name? What did he come to do? And where is he from? And this morning, we're going to have a privilege of doing something I know all of you have been longing to do. We're going to study a genealogy today. I know you probably showed up here this morning as a visitor thinking, is he going to go to those genealogies? We're going to study this morning that portions of scripture in our Bible reading plans that we often skip because brothers and sisters, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And there is so much glory in this passage that I want to draw your attention to. And uh, my hope and my prayer As we look at this long list of names, children, that's what a genealogy is. That's a fancy word for a long list of names. We're going to look at this genealogy, and I hope that you'll see that Matthew is connecting the arrival of Jesus with the long history of what God has been doing in history for his people. So, As we study Matthew's gospel over these next few weeks of Advent, chapters one and two, my prayer for each one of us is that we would meet the Savior even perhaps for the first time. So let me begin reading there in Matthew chapter one, verses one to 17. And just know that this morning we're just going to be focusing our attention on verses one to six. But I'm going to read you the whole thing to get the context. This is what scripture says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nishon, and Nishon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, 
And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matthion, and Matthion, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Brothers and sisters, this morning, we're just going to focus our attention on verses 1 to 6. And I hope, by God's grace, you will see with me three glorious truths about the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that these truths would cause not only a weary world to rejoice, but would cause you to rejoice as well. Number one, first thing I want you to see from verses one to six that Matthew wants you to see, he wants you, number one, to behold the Savior of Israel. The first thing Matthew wants you to see in verses one to six, he wants you, he beckons you as a reader to behold the Savior of Israel. He begins his gospel with a title. He tells us there in verse one, this is the book of the genealogy. It's the word in in Greek, you know this word. You may not realize you know it. The word in Greek is Genesis. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is writing mainly to Jewish readers. And so he begins with the word Genesis. He he knows that the Old Testament began with children. What what book does the Old Testament begin with? There you go. We have one. Amen. Genesis, right? So the Old Testament begins with Genesis, a book of beginnings. And so Matthew, who is also known as Levi, the tax collector that is one of Jesus's disciples and apostles, he's writing to Jews. And so he he begins the New Testament with another book of beginnings, a book describing the Genesis of the Messiah. And Matthew begins by wanting you to view Jesus through two lenses. The lens that he is the son of David and the other lens that he is the son of Abraham. You can see that right there in verse one. He wants you to see everything he's about to tell you about Jesus's family tree, but he doesn't want you to get lost in the weeds. 
Some of these folks we don't know a lot about. We'll talk about each one of them. But here's the thing. If you're just one of these high-level people and you're like, what's my big takeaway from the, from the genealogy? Here it is. His name is Jesus. He's the Messiah. And he is the son of David. And he is the son of Abraham. Jesus came into the world to fulfill, to fulfill the covenant promises given to Abraham and to fulfill the covenant promises given to David. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David. David had been promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. God had said, I will establish the throne of your offspring's kingdom forever. That's the same promise we saw in Isaiah chapter 9, that the seed of David, the the, the son of David, is going to have a kingdom that's forever. And Jesus is the son of Abraham. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. He said, all the families of the earth... God said, will be blessed in you, in your offspring, in your descendant. So Jesus is a Jew. That maybe you came to church this morning to be told that Jesus is a Jew. He's a Jew. He, he's the son of Abraham. He's from the family of Abraham. And in particular, he's also the son of David. He's from the Davidic line. Now, children, I know many of you have done family trees before. Maybe you've done a family tree for school. You've, you've, and typically when you do a family tree, what do you do? You start with you at the bottom. You draw yourself, at, you're right there at the bottom, and then you go up, and then you do your mom and dad, and then you branch out, and then you've got your grandparents and your great-grandparents. Y'all nod if y'all tracking with me. You've done that, right? That's typically what you do. That's not what Matthew does. Do you notice this? He doesn't start with Jesus and then go back into history. He goes way back into history to Abraham. So don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. Verse two, he starts the family tree of Jesus, not with Jesus, but with Abraham. And he goes from Abraham all the way to David. And then he goes from David to the deportation or the exile in Babylon And then from the deportation or exile to Babylon to Jesus. That's the big flow of the whole argument. what, 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 What Matthew's trying to communicate here. He wants us to see that Jesus's family tree starts with Abraham. Look at verse two. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, you probably noticed when we read the whole thing, Matthew at the end tells you that he has, this isn't an exhaustive list. He's organized this genealogy around three sets of 14. You might be thinking, that's weird. Why would he do that? Well, because he wants you to memorize it. He, I really believe that's why he, he organized it this way. He, this isn't an exhaustive list. This is a representative list of the kingly family line of Jesus Christ. And he wrote these groups of 14 in order that we might memorize it. So in order to come to the Christmas party today, we're going to stop you at the door. I'm just kidding. You, know, you, can, you can actually come along, even if you don't know this. Now, now, many of us in this room are Gentiles. 
We're, we're, we're ethnically not Jewish. And we might not be impressed with this family tree, but this is like, this is like the most Jewish family tree ever, right? I mean, he starts with, here's his descendants. It's Abraham, or his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, of course, had his name changed to Israel and he had 12 sons. And one of the sons was Judah. Remember Judah? Judah's a bad guy. We'll talk about him in a minute. And Judah was promised and prophesied about in Genesis 49 that from Judah, there would be a lion king who would come and his scepter would never depart. This forever king was going to be from the line of Judah. But then later on, who was also from the line of Judah? A guy named David. And so you can see that this family tree is incredible. It would, it would land on the ears of someone who was Jewish in the first century as incredibly impressive. But Matthew simply wants you to notice that the hope of the world is rooted in the history of a people called Israel. The hope of the whole world, the Savior, written about in this passage, is rooted surprisingly in a people that are the descendants of Abraham. This is worth pausing for a minute. God didn't choose a mighty people, a large people, a powerful people to be the nation that would bring forth his Messiah. He didn't choose the Romans. He didn't choose the Babylonians. He didn't choose the Assyrians. He didn't choose the Persians. Listen to what he did. This was God's plan. You ready? He chose a pagan moon worshiper named Abram who was living with his pagan relatives in the Ur of the Chaldees. And he said, you are going to go here and I'm going to make you, you, Abram, a mighty nation. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you a land. And I'm going to give you a people. And I'm going to give you a descendant through whom I will bless the whole world, all nations. That was God's plan. Now, the problem was Abraham and Sarah didn't have any what? (laughs) Children. So big family, big nation, no children. How's that going to work? There were some challenges, but think about that for a minute. It wasn't like Israel was really great or impressive and that's why God chose them. Moses tells Israel why God chose them. Deuteronomy chapter six. Listen to this. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six. Listen to what Moses says. You are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. And you're asking, why did he do that? Next verse. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God 
the faithful God. Friend, what you're supposed to read when you read this genealogy, what should jump off the page to you is that the God of Israel is a faithful God. He's a God who loves, not because of anything in us. He loves us because he loves us. That's the logic of that passage. And what we see in this passage is that God is faithful. Just ever, when you're reading the genealogy, have you ever stopped to ask this question or to think about it? The God of Israel brought forth Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, because he's faithful to keep his word. He makes promises to Abraham and he keeps them. He promised to raise up a redeemer in the house of Israel, a savior, the Christ, and he's done it. Think about just for a minute how many millions upon millions of promises God kept to get from Abraham to Messiah. It's staggering. I have this chart on my computer. It's, it's all of these um, verses that are, that are promises, promises or prophecies in the Old Testament that have fulfillment. And there's just, you can't even number them. And just think about what God did to bring forth a savior. And so what are we supposed to do? If God is faithful, when we read this genealogy and we see what he's done, what, what is your response? Well, you're to walk in the footsteps of your father, Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So when Abraham was 100 years old and his wife was barren, she couldn't have any kids. God said, I'm going to make you a a great nation. And this is what Paul, the apostle, says about Abraham. Romans 4, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring bring. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do all that he had promised. So brothers and sisters, our response from reading these opening verses is to marvel at the faithful God and to follow in the footsteps of faith, the footsteps that lead us to the one who is the savior of Israel. That's the first thing you need to see. But this isn't just a genealogy that's good news only for Israel. Number two, the second thing, that Matthew wants you to see in this long list of names is this, number two, behold the Savior of the world. Behold the Savior of the world. We're not only supposed to look at the Savior of Israel, the one who's the Savior of Israel is also the Savior of the world. Look at verses three to six. You're probably getting worried because you're thinking, how in the world is he gonna tell us a story about every one of these people? Well, Matthew lists out in verses three to six, several names of men that we don't know really anything about. So basically, if you look in your Bible from after Judah, all all the way down, basically uh, till we arrive at Boaz, we don't really know anything about those people uh, other than they were 
They, they were descendants of Jesus or ancestors of Jesus. So until we arrive at Boaz, Obed, and Jesse, that's really when we know some things. Um, but what's surprising in this list in verses three to six is not the men that we don't know anything about. What's surprising are the four women that are mentioned. Look again, look again. In verse three down to verse six, there are four women that are named. We're gonna mention them in a second. But the reason this should be shocking to you is that this was not done. You did not put women in a Jewish genealogy in the first century. You put men. The ancestry was traced through the father, not through the mother. So this is shocking. This wasn't done in Jewish family trees. In the first century, in Greek and Jewish culture, women had no legal rights. Women could not testify in court as witnesses. They could not inherit property. And so it doesn't make any sense that Matthew would put these women in the genealogy of the Messiah unless he wanted us to notice it and ask ourselves, why would he do this? Well, let's look at verse, literally these four women. There's four mothers that are mentioned. Verse three, Tamar. Verse five, Rahab and Ruth. And then verse six, the wife of Uriah, who is, what's her name? Bathsheba. Yep, verse six. But here's, here's something else. It's not just that these women uh, are listed. Here's the other shocker. These four women aren't even Jewish. They're Gentiles. That's what? This is supposed to be the Jewish Messiah. What are these Gentile women doing here? Well, let's look at each one of these and ask, why are they here? And what, could, what, what is Matthew teaching us about Jesus by including them in this list? Number one, the first Gentile woman, and you'll notice all four of them in some sort of fashion are outcasts. It's important. Number one, the first Gentile outcast is a woman named Tamar. Verse three. If you go back and read the story of Judah and Tamar, you find out that she was a Canaanite. She was a Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah one of the sons of Israel. This was the the royal family bloodline, right? The tribe of Judah. Now in Genesis, we we see in Genesis 38, you can read this, and if you've never read it, Genesis 38 before, it's quite a sordid affair. But let me just summarize what happens. Judah was a horrible guy, by the way. He was a pretty bad guy. Tamar had lost her husband and her husband's brother, her next oldest brother, because they were wicked and God judged them. You can read about this in Genesis 38. Judah promised Tamar that he would become her husband. So this is her father-in-law. That he would raise up children in his brother's name. But he lied. He didn't do what he said he was going to do. He failed to keep his promise. This left Tamar as an utter outcast, which wasn't helped by the fact that she was a Canaanite that the Jews hated. So she was an outcast. So what does she do? She takes matters into her own hands. She disguises herself as a prostitute, tricks Judah, her father-in-law, into having sexual relations with her. And then she has a pair of twin boys that are listed right there in your Bible. You see their names. You see their names right there. Perez and Zerah, verse three. 
So you've got lying, you've got deception, you've got prostitution, you've got abandonment, you've got incest. And when Judah discovers what Tamar did, he says, Genesis 38, 26, she is more righteous than I am. That's the first one that's mentioned. What about the second one? The second Gentile outcast is a woman named Rahab. Look at verse five. You remember her from the book of Joshua. If you've read the book of Joshua, she's right there in chapters one and two. She lived in the city of Jericho, remember? And she was a prostitute. She was, the Bible says prostitute, or your Bible may say harlot. Every time she's mentioned in Joshua, there's a reference of her being a prostitute. Now she was obviously, she was, she was a pagan. She wasn't Jewish. She was a pagan. She was an outcast, probably because of her, of what she did. She's living in the city of Jericho. And then two spies are sent by Joshua into the city. Remember what she did? She lies to protect them because she's heard about the God of Israel. She's heard about what God has done in rescuing a people out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And because of the fear of that God and because of her faith, she protects the spies from being caught by the men of the city. And because of that, God spares her life. And when Jericho was besieged and destroyed, God spared her life. Now, just think about this. A Gentile woman, this prostitute who was an outcast, trusts in the God of Israel. Her life is spared. She marries a man named Salmon. She has a son, a godly man named Boaz. And that woman, that woman, Rahab, was the great-grandmother of someone you may have heard of, King David. Amazing. Third Gentile outcast is a woman named Ruth. See there in verse five? Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. I don't have to tell you a lot about Ruth. You can read a whole book on Ruth. It's called Ruth. You can go read about it. She was a Gentile. She was a Moabite, another hated enemy of Israel. That was her background. Her husband died. And so you you know the story. The Moabites were the staunch enemy of Israel. So she's constantly called Ruth the Moabite. She was an outcast. She'd married an Israelite man, but then he died. She had no prospects. So she's with her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law knows she's a Moabite. So what does her mother-in-law Naomi do? Go back to your people. I, I, I have nothing to provide you with. So go back to your people and find another husband there. But what does Ruth say to, to Naomi? Where you will go, I will go. And your God will be my God. And so she stays with Naomi. And in God's strange providence, she arrives there with no hope of a husband. She has no prospects, but she clings to Naomi and she clings to Naomi's God. And you know, the rest of the story involves a threshing floor. We won't get into that. But she not only gets a husband, she gets a kinsman redeemer. A righteous man named Boaz, the great grandson of, I'm sorry, the, the son of the, the woman we just talked about. And this Gentile outcast who was left for dead becomes the grandmother of King David. 
It's amazing. Last one, number four. The fourth and final Gentile outcast in the Messiah's family tree is a woman named Bathsheba. We know that from the Old Testament. She's called in verse six, the wife of Uriah. You see it? David was the father of Solomon, which, brothers and sisters, if you don't know how to say that in Hebrew, it's wonderful. Everyone repeat after me. Shlomo. 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 That's how you say Solomon in Hebrew. Doesn't sound like a wise guy, right? Shlomo. He's the wisest guy, right? Shlomo. So she is the the mother. David is the father of, of Shlomo by the wife of Uriah. So this is Matthew's way of referring to Bathsheba. Now, we're never explicitly told that she's a Gentile, but she was married to a guy named Uriah who we know was a Hittite. So it's very likely that she was a Gentile as well. You can read all about her story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. You know the story. King David, instead of being out fighting with his men, stayed back. And while he was alone and the the men were all fighting, we're told in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 that he commits adultery with this woman, Bathsheba. And then he tries to get her her, her husband, Uriah, sent to the front lines, which he's successful in doing that, in order for him to die. He plots this guy's murder. Then the baby who was conceived through their adultery dies. Of course, David is confronted by the prophet Nathan about this. And then we find out that the next son that is born after they marry, of course, is Solomon, the next king of Israel. Let me just ask you this question. Why is Matthew highlighting these Gentile outcast women in the family tree of the Savior? It's because from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, he wants you to know that this Christ who is the Savior of Israel is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior for all nations. Think about how does Matthew's gospel end with him commissioning the 12 to go make disciples of all nations. He's Lord of heaven and earth, and he deserves to be worshiped by the whole world. And so he's the savior of the world. He's the son of Abraham. And it's amazing. If you turn the page in Matthew's gospel to Matthew chapter two, who is the first group of people in Matthew's gospel who honor Christ, bless Christ, worship Christ, And praise Christ, a bunch of Gentiles from the East, the wise men, the Magi, who travel all the way to worship the Savior of the world. Now, at this point, I I hope you feel how shocking this is that Matthew puts this down. Now, I know a lot of you probably have done genealogical searches before. Maybe you've gone to Ancestry.com. I don't know. Maybe there's other ones like that. Maybe you've stumbled upon ancestors back in your family tree that you wish you could remove. (laughs) Now, if you've never done that, maybe you've had this experience. Never happened to me, but maybe you. You you go to a family reunion and you're like, you meet that uncle or that second cousin twice removed. And you think to yourself, how in the world can I be related to that person? You ever had that feeling? Now, if you haven't, that's probably because what, that's what they're thinking about you. Um, but my point is, maybe you've been tempted to think, I wish we could scrub the family tree, right? 
Matthew doesn't scrub the family tree of the Messiah. He literally holds these people out and said, the Messiah comes from these people. A family of outcasts and even outsiders, Gentiles. It's amazing. Matthew wants you to know that he's not only the savior of Israel, he's not only the savior of the world. Thirdly and finally, and this will be quick, he wants you to behold the savior of sinners. He's the savior of sinners. Matthew wants you to know, number three, to behold the savior of sinners. He wants you to know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And you're looking at this and you're thinking, where does it say that in the genealogy? Well, I'll tell you how I'm getting there. I don't just make stuff up. You see right there in verse one, what are we told? The the book of the genealogy of, come on, y'all. There you go, Jesus. Now look down, what you say, what does Jesus mean? Look down at verse 21. We're, We're told this in verse 21. The angel tells Joseph concerning Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name, what? Jesus, here's why, for he will save his people from their sins. See, Jesus is just the Greek version of Joshua, the Hebrew word, which means Yahweh saves. Jesus is the savior. And as you read through this genealogy, sometimes people highlight the sin of the women listed in this, in this genealogy. But have you ever considered the sins of the men listed? I mean, think about just Abraham and David. Just just forget the other guys. Just Abraham and David. You know the sins of David. We just talked about his sins of adultery, his his sin of lying about the adultery, of plotting the murder of Uriah. David, he not only did all this, he's a horrible dad. He's a horrible dad. His own son, Absalom, tries to overthrow him and get him killed. He's killed so many people in his life. God says, I don't want you building my house. And then think about Abraham. When Paul wants an illustration that God justifies the wicked, who does he use in Romans Romans chapter 4? Abraham. Abraham was wicked. He was ungodly. Yes, he was a man of faith. He is the father of faith. But he needed to be justified because he was wicked. He, think about it, the first instance you see Abraham, he's with his wife in Egypt. And what does he do? He lies about her twice to save his own skin. He's a coward. And so he gives us these people in this genealogy to remind us of the fact that God saves sinners. If you're not a sinner, then you don't need to be saved. But if, you're, if you know yourself to be a sinner, this is good news. This is good news. Think about this. What does it reveal about Jesus if his forefathers were sinners? Should we be, be disrupt, shocked that he came into the world? He called sinners to himself to disciple them. This family tree, brothers and sisters, of the Savior, this family should look like your family. You should, you should look at this family tree and not think, man, that's weird. You should look at this family tree and think, huh, there's sinners in his family, just like my family, just like your family. 
The people Jesus came to save were people just like us, made in the image of God, just like us, and fallen, sinful in Adam, just like us. We are idolaters like Abraham. We are liars like Jacob. We are adulterers and murderers like David. We are sinners just like them and just like them. We deserve death. We deserve death. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. We have sinned and rebelled against our maker and we deserve eternal condemnation for it. But Jesus' genealogy is a family of rebels and it teaches us that we need a sinless savior to come into the world to save us from our rebellion, to be the propitiation and sacrifice of atonement, to bear the penalty and the guilt that we have incurred. And that's what Jesus did. He lived the perfect life. And what does this genealogy tell us? Later in Matthew's gospel, we're going to read that he died and rose again for our justification. And what does this genealogy tell us about how we should respond? We respond because God saves sinners, even these sinners, by grace and through faith. He saves sinners by grace and through faith. Friend, listen to me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter before God how messed up your family tree is. It doesn't matter what scandal you have in your closet. It doesn't matter what you've done or left undone. You may be an outcast or abandoned or ashamed, but you find welcome and forgiveness and grace because this is the friend of sinners. That's who we're reading about. The one who's the king of glory, but he's also the king of grace. Perhaps when you read this genealogy, it just seems like a distant thing, like a trivial thing. But listen, Jesus Christ says that all who receive him, all who receive him in the empty hands of faith, who turn from their sins, who receive the Savior in the gospel, we are united to him. And he gives us his spirit, the spirit of adoption. And we are adopted into the family of God. We read in Romans 8, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Friend, if you trust in Jesus Christ and if you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, this is what's so amazing you actually are adopted into the family tree of the Messiah. This genealogy becomes, in, in some ways, yours. This becomes your family tree. God welcomes us, treats us like firstborn sons. And in Christ, we have an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. An imperishable inheritance that we can't lose or squander. We become by grace and through faith, 
united to the Savior of sinners who loved us and who gave himself for us, who rose again to justify us. And one day we're promised that we will spend an eternity in a new heavens and new earth, not only with our elder brother, but alongside Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the saints who've walked before us by faith. So what is God's promise to you if you're in Christ? All things are yours. All things are yours. Whether life, world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you even for this list of names. Lord, we pray that even through a a sermon that is faulty and perhaps perhaps not as comprehensive, but we wonder about every single person in this list. We pray that the one name we would leave remembering today is the name Jesus, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, and the Son of David. Oh Lord, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would grow us in the grace and knowledge of him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.